You are listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast with Dr. Rosalind Morell, Episode 25, Brain Tumors with Dr. Daniel F. Kelly. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer from A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode on brain tumors. Brain tumors may not get as much attention as the other types of cancers, but they are very important to talk about. So I'm really excited to bring you today's episode where I had a fantastic discussion with Dr. Daniel F. Kelly, who is a very well-respected and accomplished neurosurgeon here in the greater Los Angeles area. Dr. Kelly is currently the director and one of four founders of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, which is a unique multi-specialty group of over 35 physicians working across nine centers of excellence. He is also the director of the Pacific Brain Tumor Center and Pacific Pituitary Disorder Center at Providence St. John's Health Center and Professor of Neurosurgery at St. John's Cancer Institute. He serves as President and CEO of the PNI Foundation. He graduated from Claremont McKenna College, Georgetown University School of Medicine, and completed his neurosurgical training at George Washington University. He's the recipient of the Southern California Super Doctors Distinction 15 years in a row, and he is considered a world leader in advancing minimally invasive keyhole and endoscopic approaches for brain, skull base, and pituitary tumors. He's been in practice for over 25 years, and he has one of the world's largest series on endonasal surgery with over 2,000 procedures performed, including over 1,000 endoscopic endonasal surgeries and almost 2,000 craniotomies for brain and skull-based tumors. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Daniel F. Kelly. Dr. Daniel Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Rosalind. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. And so you are a very well-respected neurosurgeon and one of the co-founders of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to become a neurosurgeon? I always love hearing about those stories because they're so always so interesting. Well, it wasn't a linear path, that's for sure. I was always interested even in in high school in the biological sciences. And when I went to college, I knew I would be doing something in that realm. And I initially thought I was was leaning toward marine biology. I went to Claremont McKenna College in the Los Angeles area and really liked that. But then as I got further into college, I realized that marine biology or things like that, I would need to get a PhD. It's very focused. It's a bit narrow, and I had a lot of other interests, and I saw medicine as a way to have lots of possibilities and to postpone a decision for a few more years, 
And then when I got into uh, medical school, I, late in college, I got very interested in human evolution and the evolution of human intelligence. So as I went to med school, I was very interested in neurology and the neurosciences in general. And I like neurology a lot. I like the diagnostic aspect of it. But I really like the doing of neurosurgery more. And I'm somewhat of a physical person. And I, I like moving and doing things with my hands. And it just seemed like a much better mix for me to, to be in the realm of neurosurgery. The other thing that I like about neurosurgery is that in many ways, it's still a very young field. We have a long ways to go. We can do a lot better for patients for certain diagnoses like stroke and traumatic brain injury and brain tumors, lots of room for improvement. And I saw it as a field that I would um, not get bored in and could, you know, there's with surgery, in all the surgical fields, there's this, you know, sort of athleticism and physicality to it. And there's also immediate gratification to some degree when things go really well. But there's also, you know, the agony of defeat. And when you occasionally have a complication, and it can be a very humbling field. But I saw it as a field that would be endlessly exciting and with lots of um, room to explore and to do a lot of good, hopefully. Yes, and I'm sure you have done a lot of great work and helped a lot of people. I remember my experience as a med student, my first time in the operating room with a neurosurgeon, and I found it to be fascinating as well. It was just amazing what was happening and certainly very demanding. I don't remember how long that surgery was, but uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure I was I was there with him for a pretty long period of time. And I don't remember, you know, so many years ago, because this was probably 1996, 97. I don't remember if it was a tumor or something else, but yeah, very interesting. So you were practicing here in Los Angeles. And what led you to want to start the Pacific Neuroscience Institute? So my first job out of training was at UCLA. And I was there for 14 years from 93 to 2007. I had a great run there. And over time, I became more and more focused on brain tumors and pituitary tumors, brain, skull base and pituitary tumors. Around 2005, I started to get a little restless and wanting to consider some other options. And I learned about the John Wayne Cancer Institute. At the time, it was called the John Wayne Cancer Institute. Now it's the St. John's Cancer Institute. And they had no neuro-oncology program, no brain tumor program. And it seemed like an opportunity and a program waiting to happen. And also an opportunity to have a fellowship training program in minimally invasive neurosurgery. And so I made the move in 2007 to join the Cancer Institute and St. John's Health Center, which is now Providence St. John's Health Center. And it's been a great run. When I went there, I did not have the idea that I would create our own Pacific Neuroscience Institute. That came over time. And around 2014, after I had brought in a junior partner, Garni Barkadarian, who's an excellent neurosurgeon and in partnership with Chester Griffiths, an ENT, and Howard Krauss, a neuro-ophthalmologist, we then recruited Santosh Kayseri, a neuro-oncologist, and those were the four founders of the group. So from four different specialties, and we decided to create PNI. We initially had, when it all came together, it came together in 2015, but we formalized our alliance with Providence in 2017. We had 17 doctors in the medical group. Mostly neurosurgery, ENT, neuro-oncology, neuro-ophthalmology. Now we have almost 40 in the medical group. 
across about 12 specialties and eight centers of excellence. So we've expanded a lot, but our base and our core has always been around intracranial tumors of all types, skull-based tumors, pituitary tumors, and you know benign and malignant brain tumors. So you must see quite a bit that um, in terms of a variety with patients that come through the door and what they've been diagnosed with or what you're, you are actually diagnosing as well, correct? Right. So my main practice for many years has been focused around more benign than malignant tumors, mostly pituitary adenomas and meningiomas. Those are, those are two of the most common. Meningiomas are actually the most common primary brain tumors, as I'm sure you know. We also do a lot of malignant tumors like gliomas or glioblastomas. My partner, Dr. Barkadarian, tends to do more of that than I do now. He also does, and we both do metastatic brain tumors, which, as you know, are, are very common. But interestingly, much less common than they used to be from a surgical standpoint. When I first came to the, uh, to the St. John's Cancer Institute in 2007, the most common malignant brain tumor I operated on was metastatic melanoma. Because of targeted therapies and immunotherapies, we hardly ever see melanoma metastases to the brain now, which is a great thing for the patients. And so it's really changed. That changed quite a bit. But so we do the full spectrum of benign to malignant skull base and, you know, intracranial tumors. And we we certainly see a lot of malignant uh, gliomas too, unfortunately. And some of your uh, patients also have spinal tumors, correct? Yes, we do see spinal cord tumors, you know, those are pretty uncommon. They're mostly benign, usually meningiomas and schwannomas, which are benign subtypes. And then there are some bad tumors that can occur. Fortunately, they're pretty uncommon. I don't do any significant spinal surgery unless it's a spinal cord tumor. I don't do, you know, spinal reconstruction and that sort sort of thing anymore. I stopped doing that a long time ago. I'm very focused on on things above above the neck on brain tumors. Yeah. Right. What was it about pituitary adenomas and meningiomas that made you want to focus on those? Well, I would say I got really excited about the pituitary gland by my mentor, Ed Laws. Dr. Laws is really one of the giants in neurosurgery. He just retired from active clinical practice um, just literally a few weeks ago. He's in his 80s. He has the largest series of pituitary adenomas in the world by far, multiple thousands of these cases. And he uh, was an incredible academician and surgeon and, and really instilled a lot of enthusiasm about the pituitary gland. And as you know, the pituitary gland, we consider it the master gland. It controls all of the body's hormonal functions. It's very small and it's surrounded by a really unique set of structures, including the carotid arteries and the optic nerves and the brainstem is right near it. It's a, it's a very compact, amazing area. And Unfortunately, a lot of tumors arise there uh, for our for our patients. Fortunately, they're very removable and they're mostly benign. There are some rare types, as you know. There are things like craniopharyngiomas, chordomas of the skull base that we see. But the vast majority, over 80% of the pathology we operate in and around the pituitary is a pituitary adenoma. And we do that through the nose, endoscopic endonasal surgery, no incisions on the face, it's really a procedure that's come a long ways in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. We do it all now endoscopically. Um, it's a team surgery with ENT with my partner, Dr. Griffiths, usually. 
most of the patients are in the hospital one night. You know, they go home the next day. There's only one subset of pituitary tumors that we tend to treat with medication. Those are prolactinomas that typically will shrink with a set of drugs called dopamine agonists. But in general, pituitary adenoma surgery has come a long ways. And in, and in experienced hands, it's very, very safe and effective. Now, we still, as you know, as a radiation oncologist, we still have quite a few patients we can't cure with surgery because of invasion around the, the structures of the pituitary gland, the cavernous sinus, for example. And some of those patients will need radiosurgery or stereotactic radiotherapy. And some will need medical therapy. Some will also need hormone replacement if the pituitary gland isn't functioning well because of the tumor or sometimes because of the surgery. They might require thyroid replacement or men may require testosterone. It's an area that I think pituitary medicine has really come a long ways, and, and it's a real multidisciplinary team approach. We have what we would call a center of excellence, and we've been working on that concept for a long time and refining it. So one of the nice things at PNI, a patient with a pituitary tumor can come in, and in one day they see the endocrinologist regarding their hormones, the neuro-ophthalmologist regarding the vision because they may be losing vision because of the, the tumor, and then they see their surgeons, myself and Dr. Griffiths, the ENT, all in one stop. And so um, it's really multidisciplinary care under, under one roof. And I think ideally for our patients, that's the best thing because there's a lot of collaboration and teamwork involved. Right. And it makes it easier on the patient. I, they have one place to go and they can see the different specialists pretty much on the same day. Absolutely. And same with, you know, when our patients come back in and we, we know that maybe their tumor that we left a residual behind that may have grown and we will send them to our radiation oncology colleagues to consider radiotherapy. Yes, yes. Because, I mean, these absolutely these tumors both benign and malignant, definitely require a collaborative approach. And it's really nice to have all of the different specialists involved who are basically telling us their opinion about, you know, what needs to happen, what should be happening. So I do definitely want to get more detail from you about the endoscopic endonasal surgery. But when you first are presented with a patient in front of you. What's your approach? Let's say you have a patient who comes to P&I and maybe they've come in, actually they came through the ER and they've been having headaches and maybe a few other symptoms and a scan is done uh, in the ER and a mass is seen in the brain. And then they get referred to one of the specialists there at P&I how do you, let's say if they're sitting in front of you, how do you approach that patient? What are your first steps in terms of your process and how you think about what needs to happen next? Sure. So for a pituitary tumor, many of those patients come referred from an ophthalmologist or primary care doctor or an endocrinologist. So it, it will depend on, you know, if they come with a, what we call a functional tumor one may be causing Cushing's disease, where there's too much cortisol in the blood, or acromegaly, where there's too much growth hormone. Then we have a, a specific approach to make sure, to, first to make sure that the diagnosis is correct, because sometimes it, with acromegaly, it's not such a, it's not so difficult, but with Cushing's disease, it can be very challenging. So we want to make sure we know exactly whether the tumor is making hormones or not. And then depending upon the size and location, we will recommend to the patient that they, they are a candidate for endoscopic endonasal surgery and they should have the surgery. Then we talk about how do we do that? We look at their 
pictures together. We show them where the tumor is, where the pituitary gland is, how we're going to do the surgery with Dr. Griffiths and me, how we, we strive to remove all the tumor and save the normal pituitary gland, how we do what's called the reconstruction to make sure they don't get a postoperative spinal fluid leak. We have a very elaborate protocol for that. We have a, about a 1% leak rate in our cases, so very low. And then tell them what to expect after surgery, what they can do in terms of activity. We tell them you'll be walking the day after surgery, hopefully go home the day after surgery. You can drive 10 to 12 days after surgery. After three weeks, you can do anything. And of course, we follow them up. And Dr. Griffiths and I both see them, and there's, there's quite a bit of follow-up. They will go back for their, to their endocrinologist. We follow their hormone levels with them, et cetera. So there's a several different pathways depending upon if it's a functional tumor or a non-functional tumor, and those are, those are pretty well mapped out. For a brain tumor, say a meningioma, which is another big part of my practice, um, that's where we, we get into this concept of keyhole surgery. And the approach that we recommend is entirely dependent upon where the tumor is located. I will add that, and we've looked at this in our practice, in about 25% of our patients who are referred to us for a pituitary tumor, we don't operate on them because they don't need surgery. Incidental finding, they got a scan for another reason. We found this little tumor. We're just going to watch it. For meningiomas, for people over 65, it's almost a third of them that we don't operate on them, incidental discoveries. So not everyone that has a brain tumor needs surgery. And those are often some of the happiest patients we have. They come in thinking they've been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And we say, well, you do have a brain tumor, but it's a benign brain tumor. It's just, as far as we know, it's just sitting there. This is the first, you know, view we've had of it. Let's just keep an eye on it. And many of those patients, particularly those over 65, the tumors tend to not, not grow. But some, obviously, they do grow and ultimately will operate on them. But if, so if a patient comes in, you know, a typical presentation for meningiomas, again, depends on location, might be vision loss if it occurs in the midline skull base around the pituitary gland. That's a very common location, which we have a lot of experience with. And in those cases, again, the goal is what we call maximal safe removal and preservation of all the normal structures. And so for that location, those are done either through the nose, the same endoscopic endonasal approach, or through the eyebrow, a little incision in the eyebrow with a small opening, about two by two and a half centimeters of the bone just above, so a, a very small uh, craniotomy. And then we have other keyhole approaches from the side, from behind the ear. We have some that we call gravity-assisted, which allow the brain to fall away by the way we position the patient sort of tilted. And that allows us to create some space that we can, without retracting the brain, that allows us to kind of sneak into the area where the tumor is, often with an endoscope, to remove the tumor. And that is because what you're trying to do essentially is minimize the amount of retraction on the brain? Yes. Yeah, so we stopped using retractors many years ago. Brain retractors have been around for a long time. When I was in training, they're commonly used and they can hurt the brain. There's many ways to hurt the brain. It's a soft structure. And really our goal, and I tell this to patients, is to sneak in and sneak out. That's, that's the essence of keyhole surgery. We want to minimize collateral damage. We want the patient to get back to their normal functioning, re restore their quality of life as rapidly as possible. And I think, you know, what's really happened over the last 20 
plus years. And since, you know, I finished my training in 93, so now almost 30 years ago, there's been a big shift. And a lot of us that are doing brain tumor work use these minimally invasive keyhole approaches and use the endoscope as well to really to really help us. And the beauty of the endoscope, so if you if you imagine with an operating microscope, this is a way pituitary surgery used to be done down the nose with a speculum in the nose with the light outside the patient shooting down through the nostril through a speculum to visualize. Well, with an endoscope, you take the scope and the light source inside the nasal cavity into the sphenoid sinus. And so you get this much better view. They're high definition endoscopes. We use what are called rigid endoscopes. And you get a a really beautiful panoramic view. Same concept in brain tumor surgery when we're doing a craniotomy. The microscope is very helpful. We almost always start with the microscope for all the craniotomies, but we will typically end with the endoscope because it allows us, when we're working through these smaller openings, to sneak under the brain without any retraction. And with an angled lens, we can see around corners, and it allows us to get to and see places that we can't see with sort of the tunnel vision of the microscope. And so when you take the use of endoscopy, better refined, low-profile instruments, better neuroanesthesia, things like the Doppler probe, which allows us to find blood vessels that are, can be on the backside of a tumor so we don't injure them and give them a stroke. All of those things, I think, have helped us to allow us to sneak in, sneak out, get patients through a surgery easier with less collateral damage. The neuroanesthetic techniques are really have gotten better so that patients, they don't need to spend four or five days in the hospital, which is the case at many places still for a lot of brain tumor operations. Our length of stay now for our brain tumor patients is one to two days, typically. You know, occasionally we have someone that will need to stay for a longer time or has some issues, but many of our brain tumor patients go home on day one after a craniotomy for brain tumor. That is a really short period of time. So, You specialize in this area, but not all neurosurgeons are are specializing or kind of doing minimally invasive keyhole surgery. That's true. There are some, there's definitely some centers in the U.S. and in Europe and elsewhere where they're doing, doing a fair amount of this like we are. We've really, I think, pushed the envelope on it and we're always striving to do better. I can tell you that within Providence, the 51 hospitals, we have the lowest length of stay of anyone in the whole system compared to all the other brain tumor surgery that's going on. When we compare our length of stay, we just published a fairly the largest series of keyhole meningiomas surgery ever published just recently came out a few weeks ago. And in the discussion of that paper, we looked at length of stay across many publications for meningiomas in general. And in that paper, our length of stay was, our median was three days, and then it went down to two days in the last part of the series. And in most series, it's three to six days, depending upon where you're looking. And a lot of, in our series also is a more complex patient population, what we call mostly skull-based tumors. So, um, I'm not sure why more people aren't doing it. And I think I think more and more centers over time will pick it up. But there's still a lot of traditional skull-based surgery done through very large incisions, big bone flaps. Um, and in our opinion, 
um, our group, we, we just don't feel that you need to do that. And it serves the patient better for most cases. I mean, there are occasions where you need a large exposure, but in many, you can do a really good job with a much smaller incision, smaller bony opening, as long as you have all of this equipment. And, and I think experience obviously helps. Yeah. So do you think it's going to move more in that direction? I do. I think it's going to move more in that direction. And another paper that we wrote was, it was called Streamlining Brain Tumor Care During the COVID Pandemic. And we, we actually, we were already had a pretty short length of stay, but we, we looked at a group of patients um, just before the pandemic and then during the heat of the pandemic. And because of things like making sure the nursing staff knew the patients were going to, we were going to try and have them go home the day after surgery. Occasionally, they went home the day of surgery because there was such a bed scarcity and an ICU bed scarcity. So we we got we also reduced our use of the intensive care unit because beds were being taken up mostly by COVID patients. And so we realized that most of our patients, they didn't really need the ICU. Would they go to the recovery room? We keep an eye on them for a couple hours. They go down and get a CAT scan to make sure everything looks good. And if they look good, their CAT scan looks good they go to what we call a step-down unit. So in that series, during the COVID group, we dramatically decreased use of the ICU, and we further lowered our length of stay across all brain tumor types without an increase in readmissions or complications or any anything like that. And so I think it's about having these protocols in place, but also a lot of it is making sure the team understands what the goals are but also the patients and the families and changing their expectations. Because if you tell the patient, well, you're going to need to be in the hospital for three to four days, they'll go, okay, I need to be in the hospital for three to four days. But if we say, actually, you're going to want to leave the hospital the day after surgery, and you're going to be able to, and you reassure them, listen, we're not going to send you home unless you're ready to go. We're not going to send you home unless it's safe. But if you're up walking around, and your, your CAT scan and your MRI look good, there is no reason to be in the hospital. And in fact, other people need that bed, and you're going to be better at home. Wouldn't you rather be at home than in a hospital bed? And most of them go, yes. And so when you prep them before surgery in that way, they want to get out of the hospital on day one. They're ready to go. And so I think managing expectations is a huge part of the, of the process. I agree. I think managing expectations is very important. And I know it's true for all areas, um, even, you know, with radiation oncology as well. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I can imagine that those individuals who need brain surgery, that is so scary. I think, you know, when you talk about maybe other parts of the body where you need to have surgery, oh, you need to have your gallbladder removed or, you know, you need to have your appendix removed or even maybe something for cancer, like, you know, we're going to do surgery on your rectum and, and things like that. It's not the same as when someone tells you we need to operate on your brain. Obviously, people understand that, you know, you need your heart <laughs> and you need your brain. Yeah. And I can, that's very, very scary. And so I can only imagine and agree that if, if my neurosurgeon told me, yeah, you should be able to be, you know, discharged the next day or yeah, I would be ecstatic. It's like, oh, okay. Cause that, it kind of conveys that you're going to be okay. This is not, you know, this is not anything where you're going to have some, you know, hopefully some major complication, you're going to be be okay. 
you can go home and recover at home. And yeah, that can definitely be very reassuring. I think I think it is, and and it is. A, it's a good reminder that our patients are extremely brave. What they're what they're going through. I, I'm amazed at how they. Some of them they may have a a small meltdown occasionally in the clinic when we're talking, but most of them it's you know they go okay, let's do it. We're we're ready to go. It's amazing how tough and resilient people are. Yeah, I agree with you, and especially with some of their social things that they may have going on and, and sure. you know, a number of factors that play into it. And it's just amazing what you see. And I, I've said this before on the podcast, all of my patients teach me so much, you know, right. we think that we're teaching them and educating them and, and things like that. And, but it's really a lot of times it's the other way around because they are, it's, it's amazing what the human spirit. And when you're talking about surgery on the brain and, and you're also talking about radiation and chemotherapy and all the things that we, we do to our patients, obviously to help them, but it can be overwhelming, scary, you name it. So, well, and I think with, the malignant brain tumors like gliomas or glioblastomas and metastases from a cancer from somewhere else, surgery is often just, just the beginning. Um, and they, they are looking at radiation and chemotherapy or immunotherapy. And they're looking at a long, a long road. And, and ultimately, they may be looking at a terminal illness. Um, and it, it's a it's a it's a very different scenario than when you're dealing with someone with a meningioma, for example, or a pituitary tumor in which it may not shorten their lifespan whatsoever, and they may get totally back to normal and be great. But yeah, there's a lot of daunting pathology in the head, for sure. Yes, absolutely. And so how do you work with the neuro-oncologists and the ear, nose, and throat physicians and the radiation oncologists? Can you just tell us just a, a little bit about those specialists and how you work very closely with them? So we work really closely with our neuro-oncology colleagues and our radiation oncology, ENT, neuro-ophthalmology. Every Wednesday, we have a multidisciplinary neuro-oncology tumor board. So we review all the current cases, and particularly if there are issues about which way to go. Does this person need another surgery? Should they have radiosurgery? Can we change their immunotherapy? And that's a, that's usually an, an hour-long or sometimes longer conference. But then just day-to-day -day in our clinic, in my clinic, I may have a consultation with Dr. Krauss about the eye exam on a patient. He's our neuro-ophthalmologist. Dr. Griffiths and I will see patients together the same day, not physically together, but, you know, get them ready for their, for their surgery and then see them postoperatively together. And our radiation colleagues, Lisa Chaikin and Bob Woolman are, are great. You probably know them. They're wonderful and they always have, you know, a lot to add and are, are just great, great colleagues. And then my partner, Dr. Barkadarian, he does the radio surgery with them. So he, he does the planning with them. So it's a very, intermingled group. And I think that is part of the the secret sauce of, of providing really good, good care where um, it's not driven just by one thought process. Because, uh, you know, as you know, a lot of these cases, there's more than one way to go sometimes with the treatment. And it it's good for us all to put our heads together and say, well, here, here are the pluses and minuses of each approach. And then we come up with a plan and present to the patient and say, this is what we recommend. 
So I, I think that's one of the really strong points of Pacific neuroscience is that collaborative approach that we have. Right. That's definitely beneficial. In terms of the advances in neurosurgery, we've talked about the endoscopic surgeries, the minimally invasive keyhole surgery. What else is, are the, in terms of advances in neurosurgery that are kind of coming down the pike or that you're actually doing right now? One new thing, it's not so new, but you, you've probably heard of fiber tractography or DTI. This is the looking at the fiber tracks in the brain. And we use that. So you can, you can get the, the DTI images or the fiber tractography from the MRI, and it can help us know a safe place to go in and, and biopsy or not biopsy or remove a tumor. What's the safest trajectory for a tumor that's inside the brain? And there's a newer area called connectomics, and there's something called the Human Connectome Project, which looks at all these what are called neural networks that is a more sophisticated way of looking at how the brain relates to itself and what are the potential downside of taking one trajectory over another by potentially disrupting a network and having significant effects on a patient's personality or not. It's also changing the way, you know, psychiatry is perceived for some some uh, psychiatric disorders. And so, we're applying connectomics and tractography more in our in our cases of what we call intraaxial brain tumors, so tumors that are inside the brain, like a glioma or a metastasis. Doesn't help so much with things like you know skull base meningiomas, for example. That's one. There are things like focus ultrasound, which we haven't really been using. I don't think focus ultrasound is, in my mind, is not really proven to be uh, much of a of a game changer. I think with what we have, the precision of radiosurgery, as you know, is so good now. Whether it's the gamma knife or the cyber knife or a LINAC, you know, all these different machines, which we have a, a linear accelerator, um, we have the, the variant edge, and it's a fairly new machine. And I think all of those really do an incredibly good job of, you know, focus, precision, shaped beam that again, minimizes collateral damage and gets a significant dose of radiation to the tumor. And that's a great adjuvant therapy that we have when, for many of the skull-based meningiomas, for example, we can't remove the whole thing. We, we know we're going to leave some behind because it's wrapped around the carotid artery or another artery or nerves. And so you have to do a maximal safe removal. And then we typically will watch the residual tumor. And if it grows, then usually treat it with focused radiation. But that's been around for quite a while now. It has a very good track record, as you know. I think the sort of holy grail that they're looking for is a cure for glioblastoma. I think that's still quite a ways away, unfortunately. It's a very complex, tricky tumor. There's many subtypes. It divides wildly and rapidly and is relentless. And using combinations of standard chemotherapy and radiation preceded by maximal safe removal surgery, still the average lifespan is 18 months to two years. It's not that common that people go beyond two and three years. But Dr. Kayseri and, and our group, our neuro-oncology group, have been looking at upfront immunotherapy before radiation 
and then doing radiation later. And they're having some good success with that. They've had some long-term survivors, but I don't, I'm not sure we know which subtypes that protocol is going to work in. So I think in, in malignant brain tumors, we have a long ways to go, particularly in the gliomas. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. And hopefully we will, we will make some significant progress pretty soon. I mean, we're doing fantastic in definitely other areas of, of cancer. And so hopefully we'll make some significant advances in glioblastomas. One other question before we end our interview. I wanted to ask you quickly about psychedelics. Can you touch upon that, please? Sure. As many people listening may know, there is somewhat of a psychedelic renaissance going on right now psychedelic-assisted therapies with things such as psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, or MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy, both of which are Schedule One drugs now. They were scheduled that way in 1970 by the government as having no medical benefit. But psychedelics have a long history in shamanic cultures and, and healing and ritual cultures, and they were used quite widely in the 60s. 50s, 60s, and up into the 70s with many clinical studies, and they were used by psychiatrists and psychologists to treat a whole variety of disorders such as anxiety and depression, grief, existential crisis of dying. It was used a lot in cancer patients and uh, multiple forms of addiction, particularly alcoholism. LSD was used a lot for alcoholism in the 50s and 60s. And so now over the last 20 years, there's a resurgence in that. And there's been lots of clinical trials. We actually formed a, a program around that within our brain health group, and it's called Treatment and Research in Psychedelics, or TRIP, the TRIP program. We recruited Keith Heinzerling, who's an addiction medicine specialist at UCLA, and he is running the program. I've been very much involved in, in creating it and working with him. And we think, and many people think, that it is going to transform behavioral health care. I think it's perhaps the most interesting thing going on in the neurosciences right now, this rebirth of psychedelic science. And the reason is, is that these molecules, for example, psilocybin, they are, they seem to have a transdiagnostic potential, meaning they can help treat things like depression, anxiety, addiction, perhaps things like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, anorexia. Many things that we call ruminative disorders, where the brain gets sort of stuck in a loop. Psilocybin and LSD are serotonin agonists, and what they what they do is they seem to kind of loosen the very tight filtering that the brain has and the sort of restriction of what we call our, our ego or the default mode network, where we kind of live every day and we get stuck in these behavior patterns, some of which are very helpful and good to, to get us through our day and, you know, get everything done, but some are which are clearly bad for us. Addiction, anxiety, depression, PTSD can all fall into that category. So, for example, we just did a study with alcoholics with psilocybin where they had two, two journeys about a month apart. We're still looking at the data but with the goal of people reducing their drinking or stopping drinking. But we know that the initial results look quite good. For depression, if you take, there's been a number of studies for major depression, and there's some large phase two trials going on right now. We participated in one, and again, the data is being analyzed. But in the original, in the initial trials, around 60 to 70% of the individuals after a single psilocybin journey 
their depression disappeared. They were no longer, you know, clinically depressed. There have been some very good studies, as you probably know, around cancer, both at NYU and Hopkins. And they had two large phase two trials that were done a few years ago. And similar similar results where with this uh, therapy, the patients had a significant drop in their depression and their anxiety about their diagnosis. A couple other things. I mean, this is sort of a long discussion, but a, a couple really important points about psychedelic assisted therapy. It's called that because it's not just someone saying, here, take 25 milligrams of psilocybin and, you know, you're going right. to, the depression is going to lift or you're going to stop smoking. There's a lot of prep. There's psychological counseling beforehand to make certain that um, the individual understands what is their goal where they're coming from, what they want to accomplish. Also developing a sense of sort of fortitude and also trust with the guides because the session itself, say with psilocybin, it's a five or six hour session, usually with eye shades and music, very evocative music, non-lyrical music to help take you on a very deep internal journey. And the, the mantra used is trust, let go and be open. Trust the medicine and the process, let go of whatever you're holding on to so tightly and be open to what you find. So, for example, if you see a deep, dark stairwell with a door at the bottom, go down and open the door. If you think you're going to die, go in. You're not going to die. And the guides are there to help people when they get into trouble or they're having or they're stuck. And that's very important because... These trips are usually very deeply emotional and challenging. And you've heard of the term a bad trip. You can imagine if you did this and you weren't prepared and you didn't know that these dark things were going to appear in your journey and you didn't have anyone there to help you, it could, it could go off the rails. And so right. the guides, trained guides is really critically important. Keith Heinzerling and I and our other guides have all taken training in the in this, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy. And there's a whole sort of process for doing that. So the guides are very important. And then what we call integration after the session. So the day after the journey, you meet with the patient and then several more times to sort of integrate what they encountered in their experience. It's actually a very old story. As I said, these, some of these drugs have been, or medicines, plant and fungal medicines have been used for thousands of years in these cultures. But this is the modern reincarnation of it. And it's having some really amazing effects on a whole host of, of disorders. And it's very relevant to people with cancer, for example, because a lot of them have this, you know, existential crisis around their diagnosis and potentially their, their mortality from the disease. We're very excited about it. Um, we're taking it very seriously. It's a big deal to do these trials because you have to get a DEA Schedule One license. There's lots of um, oversight, but there's an, a number of leading centers now in the country and in Europe doing this. The biggest centers have been Johns Hopkins and NYU, Yale to some degree, Imperial College London, Basel, Switzerland, where actually Albert Hoffman discovered LSD back in the 40s. They're still looking at LSD and other psychedelics and a number of other places. So it's a really exciting area of the neurosciences and behavioral health. And, and we're, we're hoping that this is 
eventually these will be rescheduled to where they can actually be used beyond clinical trials. And probably MDMA will be approved for PTSD within the next year. It's in its second phase three trial. The first three phase three trial was very, very positive and showed it to be safe. Psilocybin, maybe another two or three years down the road. We'll see. Yeah, it is a very fascinating and up-and-coming area of medicine. So I look forward to to seeing how things work out in that area. I actually think also, have you seen the Netflix show about, I haven't seen it yet. How to Change Your Mind? Yes. Yeah, it, it's good. It's, it's Michael Pollan narrates it. He wrote the book, How to Change Your Mind, which is a phenomenal book. He wrote it in 2018. They put it into a three, I think a three-part series. It, it's good. It's well done. It's very well done. The other movie to see is to watch Fantastic Fungi. Okay. Louis Schwartzberg, the filmmaker, did that. And our, our alcoholism study was a collaboration with Louis, having people look at some of his beautiful visual imagery as they started their psilocybin journey. Um, to see if that enhanced the experience. And, and we're still looking at the data, but it's been a wonderful collaboration with Louis. And that movie, which came out in 2019, is on Netflix now. And it's just a beautiful, it's a, a work of beauty. And it's not all about psychedelics. It's about mushrooms and fungi in general, but there's a significant chunk of it that is focused on, on psychedelics. Worth a watch. I'll have to find it. Maybe I will do that this weekend. There you go. Yes. Dr. Kelly, this has been very informative. And as you and I both know, a huge topic, and we certainly can't talk about everything related to CNS, benign and malignant tumors. But again, you are a very well-respected neurosurgeon, and I'm so happy that you agreed to come on the show, share your expertise with us, and present this information. So I really appreciate it. So how can people who are listening, how can they find you and your colleagues? I want to say thank you, Rosalind. It's been it's been fun and hopefully informative. It's always good to have these conversations and let people know what what we're up to and where the where the science and medicine is heading. First of all, our PacificNeuro.org website is really probably the best place to go to see all things about PNI. We have our blog there. We have podcasts. We have a lot of good information. Our website about all the diagnoses, if you want to learn about meningiomas or pituitary tumors or endoscopic surgery, we have tons of information there that's patient-friendly. We have a lot of videos. We have a whole section on our clinical trials because we do a lot of clinical trials, not only in malignant and some benign brain tumors, but in stroke and our psychedelic-assisted therapy trials. Parkinson's disease, et cetera. So there's a lot of information there. If people want to email me, my email is dkelly, D is in Dan, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at pacificneuro.org. We're available and um, happy to participate again if needed. And, and thank you again, Rosalind. Yes, thank you. I'd love to have you back on the show in the future. So thank you so much. Or one of my colleagues. We have a lot of great well, that's right. Let me not forget them. <laughs> who could could really provide a lot of nice information. For example, in our brain health group, Dr. Merrill or Dr. Heinzling for our TRIP program, Dr. Griffiths, the founders, they're available too. Okay. 
Sounds good. I will definitely reach out to them and have them on the show as well, hopefully. Thank you so much again, Dr. Kelly. Okay. Thanks, Rosalind. Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.